0: This is episode 108 of the Swalier Pride Podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Marianne Weatherill. Dr. Wetherill is an assistant professor at the University of West Georgia. She receives her PhD in educational psychology with an emphasis in applied cognition and development from the University of Georgia in 2018. Her background includes 25 years as a full-time clinical SLP in the hospital inpatient and outpatient settings. She is past president of the Georgia Speech Language Hearing Association and former board member for the Council of State Association Presidents. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me on this wonderful, beautiful Friday afternoon. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes. All right. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. Well, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and, Dis- and uh, Professional Counseling at the University of West Georgia. And in 2018, I received my Ph.D. in educational psychology with an emphasis in applied cognition and development from the University of Georgia. Prior to that, I worked as a hospital-based SLP for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Yeah, so um, I I went into my PhD program with a really good idea of what I wanted to look at. That's awesome. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. You know,
0: like I've I've talked about going back and getting my PhD, and they're like do you know exactly what you want to study? And I'm like, for the most part, and they're like, oh, thank goodness. Cause you know, it seems like some people are like, I just want a PhD. And then they're like, I can't finish my dissertation because I still can't decide what I want to know about. So yeah, I feel like having 20 years of experience would definitely narrow that down for you.
1: (laughs) Yes, it did. Definitely. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? So today we are going to talk a little bit about motivation and some of the theories that surround motivation and motivational theories, and some of the information that I discovered during the course of doing my doctoral research.
0: Awesome. I love it so much. I think this is such a topic that is not talked about much and should be very much so. You know, it's like, why won't my patient do what I want them to do? And there's obviously a science behind it. So. Exactly. And
1: I went into it, as I said, kind of knowing what I wanted to do already, because you get any two clinicians together on any day, and one of them has a client or a patient who is not fully engaging, and so it it seemed like a universal problem, and when I started looking into it, there really wasn't a whole lot of research in our field about it. Um, There's a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about that, but... I'd like to start with just a couple of quick little stories about client. So um, there was a client that I, I saw um, that sticks in my mind and he was a dysphagia client. So he's great for your podcast. And he came in and he had been uh, using a PEG tube for a year. And when I saw him to do his assessment, I said, so what are you doing at home and how have you been practicing and are you doing any, any trials of anything, sipping water, having ice chips, swallowing. And he said, no, uh, I I don't, I don't do anything like that. I don't swallow. I said, well, you know, if you want to swallow, you need to be swallowing. And he said, oh no, no. I, 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 if I swallow, then I'm going to aspirate, I'm going to get sick. And so he was kind of uh, the, the, whoever told him about aspiration, did a really great job educating him on the fear of aspiration. And it really helped to inhibit his motivation to buy into the plan that I was really suggesting for him. So that was, that was um, a tough, a tough client to start with. And there's always somebody that comes through your caseload that has a reason why they're not doing something. There's always the people that say, oh, I really want to do it, but then they don't then they don't do it. In this case, that man's man's motivation for not participating was fear. And we're going to talk a little bit about what some of the reasons are that people don't participate that are really outside of us. So yeah. um, that are important to know too, but. Awesome. I love that. Cause I think that's, I mean, that's
0: so common, you know, so many patients are just told the worst case scenario or like, you know, my doctor told me I can never swallow again or anything or I'll die, you know, and it's exactly what you said. I mean,
1: this is fear-based learning basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that, and, and we don't even know where he came from before that. And that ends up being part of the problem that we have. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about this. All right. Yeah. So great. So the problem is that we know our patients need to engage in treatment, right? They're not going to get better if they don't do something. And I know sometimes people get better anyway and sometimes they get better because we help them and sometimes they just get better and and that's okay and really it doesn't matter to me how they get better as long as they try and, and try to move forward. Yeah. So motivation is really a problem that we see in our field, but it's also a universal problem. And if you look across the medical field, there's research in physical therapy, occupational therapy. If you go more general medical, there's people that don't observe their their cardiac precautions or their low-salt diet or take care of their diabetes. Um, And then if you go more universally, Think about every time that you've made yourself a promise that you're going to eat better, sleep more, clean your house, whatever it is, you know, and, and then there's some reason that gets in the way and, and you don't do it. So motivation is kind of a global issue for all of us. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things that we need to just, um, we need to understand a little bit better and maybe we can make a difference through somebody's in somebody's life. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the things that really started me thinking about this idea of motivation and engagement was when our payment sources started to diminish, you know, back in the old days, and I have been practicing kind of since forever, you could see somebody and they would come in and you could work with them for months. And as long as they made some kind of progress, you could justify it and you could, you could keep keep seeing them and, and keep working towards progress with them. And, yeah um, you know, people came in the hospital, they stayed a lot longer than they do now. Uh, outpatients could come again for a long time. The payment sources started to tighten up and and our expectation for being more efficient and more effective really started to kick in. And then I started to think about, well, if you only have five visits with me, we have a lot to accomplish. And and how are we gonna accomplish that in five visits if you don't show up, if you come and don't engage? you know, How can we really make a difference for that person and, and help them? And so then we think about that those resources continue to diminish. And historically they've diminished and I would imagine that they will probably continue on that track just Looking at the history of healthcare and, and healthcare dollars. <laughs> what happens then is that the people not only need to come to therapy, but then when they go home, they really, really need to participate in, in whatever their home program is, um, work towards their goal in their own way at home. And for people that have communication problems, they need to talk to people, they need to communicate. You know, they don't need to just go home and only talk to you when you see them once a week, right? I tell the patients there's a lot more hours in the day than you'll ever spend with me, you know, and I'm not going home with you and you really need to, yeah. to follow through and do this and you're, you're, yeah. you are you're the one that's the expert on you and you need to be the one that follows through and makes sure that you're doing the things that you need to do. And so, and that, like I said, that applies with anything. If they're not swallowing at home, they're gonna have trouble in therapy. They're not gonna make so much progress. So that's, that's really when I came into uh, my doctoral program, I, I thought, you know, how can I get people to do their homework? That was really kind of my, my thought. You know, I just want them to go home and do these things at home. But as I learned more about motivation, I, I really learned that it was a bigger issue than just if I tell them, you really need to do this and that they'll go do it. Right. (laughs) So I'm sure you've had some of those people where, you know, you think if they would just do it, they would make great progress. I I think that you could really get there. Yeah. Yeah. Please do something. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that was interesting when I did my study, I talked to speech language pathologists practicing in the adult medical settings. I did not focus on people that were just doing acute care. So I don't have a lot of, I don't really have acute care specific comments because most of the time those acute care patients, you see them once or twice and they're gone and, and they're so sick and you don't really have time to delve into the idea of helping them to engage between now and tomorrow. So <laughs> so, um, so I, I really interviewed um, 20 SLPs who had experience with with uh, acute rehab, inpatient, outpatient, people that really had a, more of a choice about participating and that you didn't just show up in their room. And so motivation, again, as I already knew, was a problem with, for everybody. And everybody said motivation's a problem. Everybody had a patient that they could talk about, at least one that had some kind of problems with that. and. When I asked them to put a number to it, 80% of my participants gave it a rating of 75% or higher as importance in ability to make progress. So, so we recognize in our field that it is very, very important, critically important for a person to, to make progress in our field. But we don't really know a whole lot about what to do about it. I'm going to ask you a question, Teresa. Did you have any formal training in motivation specifically? Not at all.
0: I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think the only kind of conversations that we ever had was like, if your patient's not participating, you sort of need to look in the mirror too, because you may just be telling them to do boring crap. You know, so I, th- that was kind of it. You know, like, so if I had a patient that wouldn't do anything, I'm like, okay, what can I stand on my head? You know, what can I do to like make them pay attention? But that was about the extent of it. So. Right. I could look like an idiot all day and they still probably aren't motivated.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And that's what and that's what everybody was telling me, too, was that they really didn't have a whole lot of specific ideas, interventions, even understanding of the psychology behind that. And through this process I've really become interested in the psychology of therapy. Yeah. So I have a really interesting quote that one of my participants gave me that I'd just like to share with you. She says, I think motivation is key for success. I'm trying to think of an unmotivated patient that I've had who's made significant gains in their treatment. And I think that that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at the idea of motivation in our field, there has been some, study of motivation and primarily it's been happening in the world of voice treatment. There was an interesting study done by Hapner et al. They were looking at patients who were recommended for voice referrals and what they found was 38 percent of their patients, of the patients who were referred for a voice evaluation, did not complete it and 47 percent of those who attended the evaluation didn't pursue treatment afterwards. Crazy. So that's a huge, huge dropout rate. Yeah, absolutely. There was another study done by Behrman and she found that um, she had, she was looking at voice dropout. So of the people that then tried therapy, how many dropped out? And she had 25% dropout after six weeks of treatment. And after 12 to 14 weeks, which seems like a long time now for, for somebody to be receiving treatment um, up to 35% of her patients had dropped out of therapy. Wow. So it's a big problem. Yeah. Motivation theories are one area that we don't get a lot of information about. We, again, as you said, some, you say, Hey, I'm having trouble with this patient. And somebody says, Oh, why don't you try this or try that? But I think really understanding more about where motivation is with us and where we fall kind of on the motivation continuum um, is really important. And so the first theory that was really important to me and that really made sense to me was the self-determination theory. And you probably learned about that in your psychology classes and filed it away. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and so, but it really, it focuses on the ability to um, meet psychological needs, having individual competence being related to something and supporting that person's autonomy. And so um, I think autonomy is, is one of those areas that is really important to look at because that's really what we're trying to do. We want our people to be able to go out independently motivate, engage, and follow through with whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing, whether it's answering the phone when it rings or whether it's eating their dinner. The self-determination theory is a continuum. And basically you take it from patients who are completely amotivated. These are the people that you go in their room and they pull up the covers over their head and maybe say, no, 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 and go away. Okay. And then all the way to the people that are saying please give me more I've done everything I've done it I can do at home and I need more so um, you know and, and there's a lot of people that fall in the middle of that where they say you know I'm here because my family brought me those people are not really intrinsically motivated they're extrinsically motivated they're there because their family's there they don't want to hear the only real intrinsic motivation that they get from that is that they don't want to hear their family complain they show up, yeah. <laughs> right? Pretty much. They put in their time.
0: <laughs> yeah. I got to do it or else my wife's going to exactly. nag me. And exactly.
1: Yeah. exactly. And then they move along a little bit, you know, they get to a place where they don't, they don't want to let their family down. So now, now they have a little more value with the activity and then they start to become a little more extrinsically motivated. So that means, well, I'm doing it because I know I should do it. And that's, I don't know. I kind of feel that's where I fall a lot of the time with things that I don't really want to do in my life. Well, I'll do it because I should do it. Yeah. And um, but ideally, our patients are going to move forward from that point, and they're going to say, you know, I'm going to do this because I really see the benefit in doing that. And so that's that's kind of um, to liken it to something else that everybody really understands. It's like making it a change in your life. You know what? Your doctor says, you've got to avoid your salt or you've got to exercise more. And you say, okay, I'll do it because I should do it. And then you start to feel better. And then you say, now I'm going to do it because I like it or because it's, it's helping me. You know, and you see the reward in that. And then if you really, really get engaged in it, you're saying, wow, I'm, I'm running now because the endorphins make me feel so great and I love it so much. So that's a little bit about um, motivation from the self-determination theory. And that's really the theory that I studied most in my program. So what I found with the clinicians is that we all have a basic understanding of motivation and and we all cite it as a problem, but only 25% of the people that I talked to actually said that they had any kind of direct training or education or had attended a CEU or anything specifically related to motivation. And the participants were saying that they felt that they were really poorly equipped to deal with motivational problems when they went out into the clinical world because they felt that that was an area that was lacking in the programs. So the question then comes up is, well, we have this theory and we know that people fall in these places in this theory, but so why do some people try and other people don't try? And how do, we, how do we know where they fall and how do we have any idea if they're going to move forward in that theory? So that's where the next theory that I would like to talk about comes in, and that is the theory of planned behavior. And that is by Isaac Eisen, and it is a theory that has been used in multiple different areas in healthcare. And really, it's a predictive model. So it's not, it's not for intervention, but if you apply the ideas behind it, you can get a better idea of whether your person might engage or not, and a better understanding of what the factors are. And there was a study, a meta-analysis by Armitage and Connor, and they said that this um, theory of planned behavior in their meta-study of studies that used TPB, it explained up to 20% 20% of the variance in behavior. So it is, it's not 100%, but it's a tool that we could possibly use. And it focuses on three different areas. It focuses on the person's belief of the behavior. So do they believe that the behavior has value? Basically, what's their attitude toward it? The normative belief. So what do the people around them think about it? And actually in that same study, the Armitage and Connor study, they found that the normative belief was really the lowest, but because it's the people around them, and we're talking about people sometimes that are dependent upon others to get to therapy, I think that it might have a higher relevance if we are looking at it as in terms of are our patients going to come to therapy and are they going to engage? Because if the the wife says, well, I'm only bringing him because the doctor told me to, and I don't think he's going to get better, is he going to go home and practice? Probably not, <laughs> exactly. So I think that for our population, those numbers really might be, might be different. Um, and then the third part is the person's belief of control over their own situation. So do they believe that they can achieve their goal? And is there... Actual control the same as their perceived control, and again, we're working with people sometimes that have brain injuries and things like that. You know, there are those patients that have the dense hemiplegia and the neglect, and they say, you know, if you just give me the car keys, I could drive myself home. You know, and and they have no insight into the the problem, and so um, so that is another factor again that might weigh into. The strategy um, and the use of this theory. But so when they take all of those things together and you look at look at those different areas, those things form intention and those those feed into the idea of intention and they support whether the person intends to do something or doesn't intend to do something. That then goes forward from intention to behavior. So they intend to do it. How strong is their intention? Is their intention strong enough to move them into that behavior that they ultimately, we would like to see them doing? I love
0: that. I I think that's such a, such an important piece, you know, because I think sometimes you talk to some patients, you know, and especially, you know, like our, this is totally me throwing something out there. I have no statistics to back this up, but I just think of something like in the head and neck cancer population, you know, and they're like, well, why does it matter anyways, because the cancer is going to kill me, you know, and that's just their belief. Even if the oncologist believes it's totally curable, you know, I love that. It's just so much of what we, we believe about it. Right.
1: So if you start to look at those ideas, you might say, well, I can now better understand maybe why this person isn't as, as motivated to participate or or doesn't engage as much as, as we would really like to see them engaging. So then, in addition to those theories, now we want to look at how people are choosing to approach a goal. So there's the idea of goal orientation theory, and that's by Anderman et al. And they, well, they discussed it in their article and they were looking at teachers. And being that my PhD is in educational psychology, I got a really different viewpoint on how teachers engage and and thinking about the possibilities of how I might engage learning from the field of education. I, I, I think it really, really helped to give me a, a very great perspective and bring some, some new tools to my table anyway. So what they did was they were looking at, again, how do teachers influence students and and what does that look like? And so goal orientation theory works off of the idea that there's the idea that people sometimes learn for mastery. And those are the people that really just like to learn. They're going to learn it because they just like to learn. Those are probably the people out there getting the ACE award every year. Right, right people yes. listening to this podcast. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I know. Cause nobody's, you know, nobody's twisting your arm and right. And, and we're all here listening because, right. uh, because we, we love to learn and, and learn new things. The mastery idea really supports motivation and it really raises up the idea that somebody's going to participate and, and really engage in that. Then we have people that have a performance approach orientation, and those people really perceive their ability as compared to others. So they're more likely to do it if there's a competitive reason to do it. You know, maybe I would really like to say that I did this, not as much as I would love to do it because I would love to do it. Yeah. So there's a slight difference in that, but there's still they're still going to do it because they have a reason that that helps to drive them forward. But then we have people that are performance avoidance and those people um, use task avoidance so they don't have to appear to lack ability. So these are the people that come to therapy and they say, well, I could do it if I wanted to, but I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to do it. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And you've probably had some of those too, because I know I have too. One, a couple other factors that influence goal oriented therapy is the idea of perceived press and press is really the level of challenge. And so if a person really likes level, likes a challenge, then that will make a difference in whether they engage in that, or if they don't want to be challenged, that will make a difference in whether they engage in that depending upon where they fall and the idea of goal orientation. And then, um, and then there's support. And support is really the acceptance in the environment. And one of the things that's really, that's really interesting is how many of these different theories really do fall back on what is the environment like? Where does that person come from? What does their family say? Or, or what are they dealing with in their world outside of you and, and what you're trying to do? And so um, that's, that's also a really important thing to keep in mind. The idea of home, family support, those things were all very, very important with my participants in my study too. Everybody cited home, family, community support as being really, really, really high factors in helping people engage and helping them make progress. Yeah. They are very important. So one of the things that, you know, now that we know a little bit more about strategies and theories, is, well, what do we do? right? What's the first thing that you do? If you have a person that is not really high on the motivation scale?
0: Um, I, I think I kind of try to just probe any of those things, like, how happy would your family be if you did this? You know, how nice would it be to go out to dinner with your wife if, you know, we could get you to do this. And so I don't know, I think I kind of just really give it to them, but.
1: I, right, exactly. I, I, so I, I, yeah. we, we try to reason with our patients, right? We talk to them. Okay. And talking to them was the number one thing. Everybody says that they talk to their patients and that's great. And, and absolutely we should talk to our patients. We shouldn't say, we just shouldn't say here, do it because I said so. Right. My, my mom did that with me as a child, but they're not our kids. They're other, you know, they have the choice. So So we need to try to talk to them, explain with them, and um, there's some different talk-based models that have been discussed for use with speech pathology. Um, One of them is the idea of motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is basically a talk-based model that looks at a person's readiness to change and helps them to discuss change and work through some of their ambivalence to change and things like that. So it's, it's a talk-based model. And, and for some people it works great and for other people it doesn't work. I mean, I don't think there's one cure for anybody. I mean, for everybody. So and then there's the trans-theoretical model, and that was done, discussed, again, for some voice clinicians, Van Leer et al. talked about the trans-theoretical model. And it is, again, a model of health behavior change. So again, we're dealing with people, trying to talk to them about change. So are you ready to change? Let's talk about changing. Let's make a plan to change. Let's change our behavior. And these strategies um, and models have been used a lot in a lot of different areas. They've been used in anything that requires behavioral change. They've been used in addiction and they've been used in other areas of healthcare. So they've been widely used and widely talked about. And then we have uh, social cognitive models, like the idea of therapeutic alliance. And therapeutic alliance is kind kind of a Rogerian model where like Carl Rogers talked about uh, meeting people where they are and really having regard for them, no matter who they are and, and being really acceptance of them and, and building a good relationship with them. And, and that's really what these, these social cognitive models do. So therapeutic Alliance really works on developing that relationship and a good working relationship with your client, which absolutely we should have. I think that it's very, very valuable to take the time to to get to know them a little bit, you know, not only to find out what their goals are and, and how you can help them, but just to help smooth out that that working relationship a little bit. So those are those are great, great models, but I have a little bit of criticism of them, and that is all of these are, are person-centered, great idea. They work on their goals absolutely perfect. Um, they support good working relationships, but the problem that we have is that Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And I have to wonder with what we know about people who have brain damage, which are most of our neurocognitive patients, if a talk-based model is really the best place to start with them. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't right so and again it goes back to you you talk to the patients and explain the reasoning for them yeah, and they yeah. say yeah that's a great idea or they have a whole bunch of reasons why they can't do it and then what do you do if that's all you've got in your toolbox you really need something else so i think that motivation is supported by multiple factors so you really do need to then develop the support from the family and the support and get them some support from their community, develop those good relationships with us. Uh, the clinicians that I talked to have some great terms. they described us as cheerleaders, which i 'm sure you 've heard right coaches supporters um, and then one of my one of my participants said we are truth tellers and I thought that was a really great way to describe what we do yeah absolutely you know because we do we do tell the truth and whether it 's good or bad and and um, and the patients need to hear it in an appropriate way at an appropriate time, of course. And we know as clinicians that we really like to see our patients succeed. And, and we get a really good positive feeling if we get somebody that succeeds. You know, I, I had this great experience. I had a patient, I was uh, doing PRN, filling in for somebody And uh, one of my fellow clinicians said, you know, I've got this, I got this fellow and I've been working with him for a month. He's been in and out of the ICU. He's got a trach. We're trying to get the speaking valve going on him. I can't get voice out of him. Could you just, just give me a break today and, and go see him. And so So I went in there to see him and we worked and we got a little, got a little something out of him, you know? And so the next day came and I said, Hey, you know what? I'd really like to go work with that fellow again. And, and she's like, absolutely. You know, I, I'm thankful for the break because I don't know what else to do with him clinically and I get frustrated. And um, so I said, sure, I would love to go work with him again. And the next day I went in there and I got a little more, little more sound out of him. His brother was in there with me and we're getting a little bit of sound. And then his wife came in and I said, okay, now here's your chance. What do you want to say to her? And he says, I love you. And it just came out and, you know, and she cried and he cried and I cried. And I just said, you know, that success right there is exactly why I do this. And, and you just, not only you made my day, you probably made my whole month because it was such a great great moment. And, and those things, we need the patient's success, I think, sometimes as much as they do. And yes, one, of my, one of my participants brought up the idea that, you know, we're really sensitive to each other and each other's different moods and, and what's going on. And if you approach the session like, wow, I'd rather be someplace else, that person is, is surely going to know that. And that will then affect their engagement because they're going to say, wow, this person really doesn't care. They don't want to be here. And then, you know, and then what? Again, I think that these change-based techniques are very important. And I think that we should absolutely try them. But I think that we do need to continue to think about where are our patients um, cognitively and then thinking about all those other factors that affect people. We know, especially for people that have had catastrophic illness, changes in their lives. They have depression issues that need medical management. They might have social issues because of this catastrophic illness that needs to be taken care of too. So they come with a whole other set of baggage that that might also play into this whole motivation idea. And, and so we need to think about not only can we help them because if we get somebody that doesn't wanna change then they're not going to change, right? So a change-based model isn't going to work for them. So what I am bringing to the picture from the study of education or what the study of education is bringing to me or has brought to me is that there there are lots of other ways that we can influence a person's engagement and their reward in learning or participating, and it's beyond just talking to them. One of the things that I really like to do is think about when I go in to see the, the patient in the hospital room, for example, they're watching their TV. They could be at home. You could be doing home health. They could be in a skilled nursing facility. They probably have the TV on. They're, they're watching their TV, and they'd really rather watch whatever it is on TV than work with you. Yeah. I know you've seen that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so rather than going in, you know, you don't get very well received if you just go in and turn off the TV and say, oh, it's time to do this. Right, and I hate trying to work with somebody while their TV is on, and trying to speak over the TV, and then they can't hear, and they can't hear anyway, and and it's just a disaster. So, so what I started doing is taking a little different approach, and I say I'll go in there and I'll say, Hey, I'm going to be here for about X number of minutes. I'm here to do what I'm going to do with you, and. I think that what you have to say about this is really important and I really want to make sure I hear you. Can we turn your TV down? And I haven't had anybody turn me down. So I didn't, I didn't convince them to turn off their show. I just told them that they were really important to me. I changed my behavior in that instance. The other thing that I like to do is if you get somebody that really doesn't want to sit up in the bed and you really want to move the bed around a bed and get them positioned, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, I'd really like to be a little more eye to eye with you. I think that then we can have a real conversation. I hate, I hate standing over people. Please don't make me do that. And then they say, okay, I'll sit up. So, so then the focus becomes more on me and how I can change my behaviors to help adapt the situation to help them to engage in it better. Other kinds of things that go into that would be, I mean, just putting on a happy face. You know, I tell the students that a lot. Don't go in looking scared. Just put on a happy face. You know what? Pretend you're brave. It's okay if you don't know everything and we'll get you taken care of. But they know if they think you're scared, then it's going to affect how they how they interact with you too and, and what they get out of that. So I think that... So what we really need to do as clinicians is really modify our own behaviors and think about how we, how we come in and what we're giving off in that situation and how we're approaching that situation and how are we supporting that person in their ability to engage. And there's been other research and education that, so even something as simple as just stopping to listen to that person makes a difference in how they then are inclined to engage in the setting. So for some people, rather than spending a lot of time trying to convince them to participate, think about how you can approach it in a way that they really see the benefit in it. Other than that, you're telling them that there's benefit in it. Awesome. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So I did mention earlier that I'm very interested in the psychology of treatment and, and there, there are so many other things that that really do go into the big picture um i've done a little bit of theoretical study on on the idea of hope and hopefulness that's really interesting and i think hope is a big a big factor in therapy and you know and if the people come in and they say am i going to get better and you say yeah i don't know right and then what does that do for them you know where does that where does that put their motivation and 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 hope has has kind of a fine line between giving people false hope, giving them or giving them not enough hope. And, um, and that is also one of those factors that again is that we have to consider when we're considering motivation and helping with engagement.
0: What do you, I, this is a kind of a tricky question, Miriam. What do you think the right answer is for that? Because I think I'm such a positive, optimistic person. Like I would, I tell everybody, of course, there's a chance you can get better. You know, like I, that's what I would want to tell everybody, you know, but then do we have like a legal ethical obligation to not lie if they have a super grim prognosis? You know, I and, and I don't know who knows that they have a grim prognosis, you know, but I, what do you think? Okay,
1: well, I, I, I get asked that question, you know, all the time. I'm yeah. sure you do too. Yeah. And yeah. so what I usually say is that... Honestly, I don't know if I had a crystal ball, I probably would have a different job and (laughs) I would, right. um, If I could tell the, if I could foretell the future, I'd probably be doing something else. But, um, but what I do know is if you don't try your chances of getting better are lessened. And sometimes I've seen people that made progress beyond anything I ever expected. then I tell them a story because I have another story about this lady that I worked with and she had a stroke and I was seeing her in an outpatient clinic at our hospital and she came in to see me and all she could say was, Oh honey, Oh dear. Oh my. And that was it. And she worked on her aphasia and got so much better. The backstory for this lady was that she had recently moved to our community from, a place where she had lived for many, many, many years. Her husband had passed away. She retired from her job. She moved to our community clear across the state from where she started. And the only person that she knew there was her daughter and her daughter's family. So she really didn't have her friends or other support system. And and I really wanted her to get out and engage in her life and use her speech and maximize those opportunities to improve. So I talked to her daughter. And I said, you know, what do you think about suggesting that she volunteer in our office? She had worked in the medical office before she retired, so working in the therapy office wasn't such a stretch for her, and she had made a lot of really good progress. And so I said, so how would you like to come and volunteer in our office? We would love to have you. You could help with some filing, or you could talk to the patients in the waiting room, or, you know, whatever you really want to do. It doesn't really matter to us. And, um, she said, sure. And so she came in and she started volunteering and she volunteered. And I knew this lady again for, for many, many years because she volunteered in our office. And sometimes she'd come in and, and I think she just drank coffee and chatted with the patients. And sometimes she came in and did some filing and, you know, again, it really didn't matter. It didn't matter to any of us if she did anything or not. We just wanted her to, to get out and enjoy her life a little bit but it was really funny because I would come in and I would see her and I would say, so, so what's been going on? And she would tell me a very involved story. She would say, Oh, well, honey, I went to Chuck E cheese with my daughter and the grandkids for Melissa's birthday. And we did this and we did that. And then we did something else. And she, you know, and then she would always end up with, but honey, you know, I just can't say a thing today. And that, takes me back to my original comment was that I always tell people that story and I say, and I think that that's a great example of even if you get really a lot better, you'll probably always feel like there's something different because that's always how she felt, you know, and I would call her in when I had some people that were down, we do a little peer support and, and, um, and they would say, did she really have a stroke? Did she really have trouble with this? And, and she sure did, but you know, other people couldn't tell, but she could. And so I usually say that I say, you know, people are really their own worst critics for the most part. And you're, you're always probably going to notice that you have something that you work on. It might be a very little thing, but there's probably always going to be something. And so that's kind of how I, how I address it. So let's start with this goal, whatever you know, the goal is, and if their goal is too lofty, I say, well, let's think about the steps that go into that goal and start with something that we could maybe accomplish in the next couple weeks. And then, and then go from there. And that's, that's really how I address that, that conversation. Uh, Well, since you're editing, I'm gonna throw something else out there that you may or may not edit out. (laughs) But, but, um, so that kind of leads to another thing that, that I'm also really interested in. And that is the idea of us as truth tellers, and kind of the burdens that we face as truth tellers and how sometimes the people that we're working with are not ready to hear the truth right and sometimes their families are not ready to hear the truth and so sometimes the pushback that we get really comes from them not being ready for that truth whatever that might be and then then sometimes we as truth tellers are not ready to tell the truth because we don't want to share that really awful thing that we think is going to happen when we see somebody that just got diagnosed with ALS and they're starting to have swallowing problems and we just know where that's going to go. That's a burden on us. The idea, again, coming from education, they, there's a concept called difficult knowledge. And it is when like in history classes, when you're teaching things that are difficult from history, difficult for teachers to talk about and difficult for the students to really um, want to wrap their heads around. And and I think that we have our own version of that difficult knowledge and and there is a lot of research too that shows and we I uh, listened to your podcast on burnout recently and there is a lot of research in the medical field that talks about the idea of ta- of avoidance in healthcare. So physicians and nurses and how this knowledge of these of knowing bad things about people feeds into some of that avoidance that we have, um, not of not telling people the truth or not telling them the full story. And those kinds of avoidance behaviors also carry the same kinds of burdens as burnout for, for health, high blood pressure and and stress and, and all of those kinds of issues too. Yeah. That's just another, just a little aside.
0: I, I love this stuff. I think this stuff is so fascinating. And I, I love that most of the times I ask people what they're game-changing article is in the world of dysphagia and swallowing disorders, but I'm guessing I'm going to ask you this and you're going to give me something that's probably not a paper that a lot of people have heard of before. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Awesome. What What would that be?
1: The article that really changed my perspective on how I practice in this area is called What Teachers Say and Do to Support Students' Autonomy During a Learning Activity and it's by Reven Yang from 2006, and it's in the Journal of Educational Psychology. Their their results were not particularly surprising. They were looking at behaviors of teachers, and they were looking at the idea of behaviors that were more supportive and less supportive. And things that were more supportive were things like praise and things that were less supportive were things like criticism. Like I said, it wasn't really surprising what their outcomes were. But what was really important for me, I think, was just that it was the first paper that I read that really gave me the idea that maybe I could really do more than just talk to my patients and thinking more about manipulating my environment and offering them maybe more choices, being less directive, just changing some of my behaviors and the way that I approach those different situations, looking at how maybe then. people would be able to engage more willingly if they were unwilling in particular.
0: I love that. Are you doing, so this was your dissertation, Marianne, are you working on anything?
1: You got got anything else brewing? I, I am working on something, yes. Yay. Yes. So I'm working on a study with my students because... Based on my information, we as clinicians don't learn a lot about motivation. Yeah. In particular, specifically beyond what we learn in maybe some, maybe some of our counseling class or maybe some of our psychology classes as preparation. So I'm working on a a motivation training research project with the students. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll try that. And then I'm also working on a motivation project to then take the training to my research clinic and see how the clients in the research clinic do what their perspectives are working with untrained versus trained student clinicians.
0: Interesting.
1: And then ultimately I would like to take it back to um, the hospital systems. And um, I have, i have a hospital physician at one of the, the hospitals here in my area that wants to collaborate on this Excellent. project. So, so after we trial it out with the students and, and the research clinic, then we'll look at trying it out in a rehab hospital. Yeah,
0: Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Marianne. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed talking about it. You could tell you're very passionate about it. I love people. They can just talk and talk and talk about it. Yeah.
1: There's you know, like I said, you just can't, you could just get any, any two clinicians together and you could just talk all about motivation. So, and, and the issues that, that you're seeing and everybody, everybody shares those frustrations. Yeah. Any final words? I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you so much.
0: So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and Thank you so much to
1: all of you for listening.